You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Security culture is important. It's something that lives and breathes in every organization, whether you know it or not. And so the question becomes, how intentional are you about the security culture that you have? How sustainable is that? What do you need to do about it? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, Perry Carpenter returns to discuss his book, The Security Culture Playbook. An Executive Guide to Reducing Risk and Developing Your Human Defense Layer. All right, Joe, uh, before we jump into our stories here, uh, we got some follow-up from a listener who uh, prefers to be nameless, but someone who I uh, regularly interact with uh, via email. So I know who this person is and and that they are who they say they are. I don't know who they are. (laughs) I will will read the message that they sent to us. And and they said, uh, as you know, I am both a retired Fed and a cybersecurity geek post-retirement with an emphasis on anti-scams and anti-fraud awareness. I always recommend not messing around with scammers for fun. They are professional scammers for a living. The average person is not. There is a significant knowledge and experience imbalance going on here. The average person is likely not as slick as a professional scammer. There have been instances where somebody messing around with a scammer and who have gone down the rabbit hole of conversational and transactional engagement for fun have wound up getting scammed. And as Joe alluded to, scammers likely have your contact info and can make your life absolutely miserable if you set them off. I know a number of people who have had to get a new phone number and change an email address in order to put an end to the bombardment of misery that a pissed-off scammer was deluging them with. Right. There is no upside value proposition to messing with a scammer. One should simply not respond at all to communication that is of the sort that we all instantly recognize as being a scam attempt or is just peculiar. Simply ignore the communication and block the sender as best you can. Any engagement at all only serves to guarantee more contact from scammers. These are good points. And yeah. I, I've said this in uh, scam baiting. We're still going to probably have scam baiting uh, catches of the day on here. Yeah. And I'm still going to watch people like Kidoba or whatever the guy's name is that does the scam baiting. And the guy from England who does a really good job, who's like made a uh, almost a career out of this. Right. Uh, but that guy is someone who lives in this environment. Right. right. Uh, the author of this letter is absolutely correct that um, you are dealing with people who already have your contact information when they come in. And and I've I've done this several times where I've been like, I, I really want to mess with this guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but sometimes I think, well, they already know who I am. Right. And it probably isn't hard to find out more information. If I had set up a fake account, then I would mess with them. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's interesting that he says that people have... I'm assuming it's a he. Yeah. Uh, that people have uh, played along with the scammer, trying to trying to mess with them, and then still gotten scammed. Yeah. You know the the one of the things they tell you in sales. I remember everybody. I had a brief but failed sales career. <laughs> 
Just keep the client engaged. Keep talking to them. Right. It's the same thing in scams. They don't care if you're if 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 they think that uh, you're scam baiting them. They 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 probably are savvy to that right off the bat. Right. Um. So if if they're just like, I just got to keep this guy talking and keep keep him going, and eventually I'll get some money out of him. Yeah. Couldn't and be. they're the professionals. Right. And they're the guys that do this <laughs> they, yeah. 60 hours a week. Right. 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 So they have a, a big bag of tricks. Yep. Much larger than yours. Yep. <laughs> so I think this is wise advice and a good reminder that as tempting as it is and as fun as it may seem like it's going to be, you are coming into this engagement outmatched. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, jump into some stories here. Joe, why don't you kick things off for us? Dave, my story comes from Mandiant, which is now part of uh, Google Cloud, I believe. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was written by Rommel Yovin. Okay. Uh, or perhaps Jovin. I, I'm not sure. And uh, NG Chun Kiat. Okay. And I hope I'm not mangling those names, but I fear that I am. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, and this, the article, it's a blog, it's a blog posting. It's called The Spies Who Loved You, Infected USB Drive Steal Secrets. Ah. And it's talking about these three campaigns uh, that Mandiant has observed that are using USB drives to steal secrets. Hmm. Uh, these are pretty significant campaigns. Now, the first one is actually in an entirely different article. So we'll put a link to the first article, but if you click on the first link in that article from Mandiant, you go to another article uh, or blog post that they've made that's uh, called Always Another Secret, Lifting the Haze on China Nexus Espionage in Southeast Asia. Okay. And this is talking about um, a, a collection of USB devices that have been dropped around various areas, including Southeast Asia, the U.S., Europe, and the Asia-Pacific Japanese region. Yeah. But it seems that every time that these malicious USBs are activated, they're trying to get in somewhere in the Philippines. So So that's where they're phoning home to? Right. Well, they're trying to to attack somebody in the Philippines. Oh. Um, Huh. Okay. Yep. Interesting. And they believe that this is a Chinese organization. I don't think Mandiant is actually doing a full-blown attribution here. That's really difficult to do, but they're saying this has, uh, they assess it as having a Chinese nexus huh. or China nexus. Yeah. And they are calling this threat UNC-4191, which I think is Mandiant's uh, term for an unclassified threat and then just a number. Okay. Uh, but they've observed a bunch of malware that includes uh, something called NCAT, which is a way of opening a reverse shell Back to the uh, back to the con- command and control, yeah. which lets them do whatever they want. Mm-hmm. Uh, this stuff is all written in C plus plus or C and C plus uh, plus, and it's going to happen as soon as you plug the drive in. Hmm. The second attack is called Sogu S O G U malware. Hmm. Uh, it's it's the same kind of thing. They're seeing it across all kinds of industries and geographies. Uh, it is being released in the U.S., all across Asia, in uh, in Australia, in Saudi Arabia, in Egypt, um, in France, Italy, a lot of European countries, England and Ireland, uh, or I should say the United Kingdom and Ireland. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're just listed as one country here. But it's going across all kinds of uh, different 
industries. And the number one industry is pharmaceuticals at 11.8%. And that's also tied at number one with IT. Hmm. Uh, so I don't know what they're going after here, but it looks like they're, I mean, th- there's a broad swath of industry here. Yeah. Going all the way down to education, finance, and nonprofits. So I think this is just a, let's see what we can gather kind of thing. But hmm. what's really happening is these are data exfiltration tools. Mm-hmm. So these guys are are staging and then exfiltrating all this uh, up any data they can find, mm. and they're sending it back to uh, wherever they can wherever it goes to. And and this Sogu malware is also linked to China. Mm. Uh, the third one is actually targeting oil and gas organizations in Asia, mm. uh, and this one they have not linked to China. It's a campaign they're calling UNC forty six ninety eight. They are. They're targeting, of course, oil and, and gas, but they're targeting organizations in Asia. They're executing payloads on Windows command prompts and using remo- removable media uh, to create local staging directories, which is where they're going to muster all the data before they send it out. Hmm. It's interesting that uh, these things kind of come in waves. Right. They ebb and flow. You know, for years ago, we heard of things being dropped in USB drives, and then that sort of faded away, I think, as awareness increased about it. Yeah. But now it's back. And now it's back. Uh, and, and that's an excellent question. Why is this resurging? Yeah. Um, or why is maybe this case is, is kind of unique. Maybe it's a blip on the radar. But, uh, or maybe there, it's just the same level of noise. We, we just haven't been paying attention to it. Hmm. Uh, but this is just wherever you live or work, don't pick up random USB drives. <laughs> that might say something interesting on the outside, right? <laughs> perhaps something purient that <laughs> makes you think, "Ooh, I really want to look at what's on here," right? Um, and uh, and then plug it into your into your computer or your organization's computer. Right. Plug it into the person in the cubicle next to you. Don't computer. do that either. <laughs> Don't do any of that <laughs> while they're at lunch. <laughs> while they're at lunch, you've still just hosed your company. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> What you do, you go to one of your competitors. Yes. And you plug it into their computer. There you go. <laughs> That's what you do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, it's interesting to me, this this notion of dropping these devices, you know, around the world and then having them target folks in the Philippines. Right. Like, are they trying to make it, I don't know, make it seem like the traffic isn't coming from China, I guess? I will bet. I will bet what they're doing is they're targeting organizations that they know do business with the target organization in the Philippines. Oh, okay. So they're dropping, uh, they're going into the parking lots of those places and just dropping USB drives down. Right. Um, So they have an established relationship, so chances are there's, like, the, the two companies aren't on each other's block lists. Right. For IT stuff. Exactly. So, like, for example, I know the uh, in the 80s, the World Bank did some work with the Philippine government. Yeah. So if you were targeting the Philippine government, it would be great to go to the World Bank and put some uh, put some USB drives in the parking lot there and see right. what happens. Right. Uh, I don't know if that relationship still exists. I don't know if, if the Filipino government is the one they're going after. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, that's how, that's what I think is going on here. And then the command and control is, looks like it's in China. Yeah. For yeah, the two they're, they're attributing to China. There's um, 
I remember a few years back that there were lots of organizations. It was trending that there were lots of organizations that wouldn't even allow you to plug a USB device into your computer at all. Yeah, there's there's a number of uh, organizations that that still have that requirement. Yeah, um, I know that in the United States Department of Defense, there are some organizations that say, yeah, you can't put a USB device into this computer at all. And what they do with the external facing ones is just fill them with epoxy. Right. So, <laughs> wow. So you can't do it. physically put one in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember one time, this is years ago in a previous career, I was, uh, I was at a, an event and I was back in the, you know, the AV uh, table where all the, the it was just a, like a executives meeting, you know, annual meeting for executives at a big multinational corporation. Right. Uh, so they're in a big hotel and they've got, you know, presenters and, and, uh, screens and projectors and sound and all that kind of stuff. And I was one of the folks back uh, in the back, you know, at the table that runs all that equipment. Uh, and I was sitting there by the computer that was running all the slides. And um, one of the participants, just you know, one of the executives who was there, just casually walks up with his uh, phone and just plugs into my computer that was running the presentation. <laughs> it doesn't ask, just plugs it in. And I gave him a look like, what are you doing? Yes. He's like, my phone needs to be charged. Like, no, 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 no. I don't <laughs> care. Like, like, at this moment, this is the most important computer in the building, right? right? Like, <laughs> yeah, just, ah, people. Did he not like people. the guy on stage or the girl on stage? I mean. That's a good question. Yeah. I mean, yeah. maybe he was trying to hose that presentation up. I don't know. I don't know. The other funny thing I remember from that presentation, it was like evidently uh, company-wide, this organization had some sort of system in place where all their computers would be updated at a certain time of day, like let's just say 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Right. Right? Great time um, to update. Yeah. <laughs> so we're in this big meeting, this big off-site meeting, and I'm using one of their computers to run the presentation. And sure enough, at 3 o'clock, up pops the uh, <laughs> the window to update, and everybody in the audience just laughs their butts off because <laughs> they have all experienced the pain of yes. being interrupted by a mandatory update at 3 p.m. Like, all business screeched to a halt at yes. 3 o'clock every day. So Anyway, I digress. <laughs> <laughs> I think we do a lot of digression on this show lately, Dave. It's part of our charm. Um all right. Well, we will have a link to that story in the show notes. Uh, my story this week comes from the folks over at Yahoo Finance. This is an article written by Janine Mancini, uh, and it's titled Tech Executive Falls Victim to $450,000 Scam on Dating Site. Hmm. A cruel pig butchering scheme going around. Now, you and I have talked about pig butchering before. Yes, we have. Uh, which you want to give us a quick explanation of that, Joe? So pig butchering is uh, kind of like a combination of a romance scam and a crypto scam. Mm. So uh, you start with a romance scam, and then after you've got the person hooked, uh, the target hooked, you, you then start saying, hey, by the way, I'm making tons of money in crypto. Right. Uh, and then you have an entirely uh, fake setup for... Uh, dealing with crypto, and you can even show the people when they deposit crypto in their account. Right. Uh, the account in air quotes, right? It's yeah. not really their account. <laughs> You're just giving them a wallet that you control, but you can then make it look like they're, uh, they're earning money. And some of these guys even send back the profits. Like the, 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 vict the victim may first say, okay, well, I'm going to send you 50 bucks. Yeah. 
uh, and see how this goes. And they'll send them back $100, $200. Right. And then the person will say, cool, man. Now yeah. I trust you. Yeah. I'm going to send you $10,000. Right. And that's when they exit. Well, this is one of those stories. Mm -hmm. uh, this is about uh, a woman named Shreya Datta, um, who was a successful executive at a tech company here in the U.S. Now, I'm going to read the first two paragraphs of this story, uh, and I just want to be clear here that I'm not trying to, uh, you know, victim shame Miss Datta, but I just want to kind of play red flag bingo with you, okay, Joe? All right. Okay. So it's the, the article starts and it says, Shreya Datta spent months swiping through dating apps, searching for a connection when she encountered Ansel Mali, a self-proclaimed wine trader from France on Hinge. Okay. Mali claimed he had recently relocated to Philadelphia. Once they transitioned their conversation to WhatsApp. Uh -huh, there's one. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. Right. Mally swiftly deleted his Hinge profile. There's another one. Expressing a desire to prioritize their connection and focus solely on data. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Uh, recently relocated to West Philadelphia from France. Right. We are from France. Right. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you go with that one. I'm going in West Philadelphia. That's right. Um, and that that's kind of a red flag, but that's plausible. Sure. But then there's the uh, the the platform change. Yep. Which is a big red flag. It should be a big red flag. Right. And then the deleting of the Hinge profile. Now Hinge, if I believe their marketing, which I don't know if this is true or not, but I've yeah. seen ads for them. They say they're the dating app that's meant to be deleted. Oh. Right. So when your when your data is gone from Hinge, it's gone. Oh, I see. And then if you want to go back, you have to create a new profile. Oh, so, so they're while, claiming a, an enhanced level of privacy. Correct. Okay. So while this is great for people who are dating, yeah. right, you don't want whoever it is, the dating app, to have your data while you're not there. Right. Um, you know, wh why would you even have a, a dating app if you're in a monogamous relationship? Sure. Right? So it seems like it's a good idea, but it's also a, and it is a good idea, I'm not disputing that it is, but it's also an area that's ripe for scammers mm. because their data, first off, Hinge doesn't want these people on their platform. And I'll bet that Hinge does a lot to keep them off. Mm. Um, and maybe the reason this guy's profile got deleted is because Hinge said, okay, this guy's a scammer. Yeah. And they deleted it. It could be the case. Could be. Could be that this person is just cycling through profiles. It, that could also another. be the case. Yeah, that, he, that's what I would suspect. He said, I'm, I'm I'm guessing it's a he because yeah. these guys usually are he's. Um, <laughs> interesting that his last name is Molly, the name of a country. Mm -hmm. um, I guess that's believable. It's just a common name. Yeah. yeah. So those are my red flags, Dave. Switching yeah. switching the profile, profile gone, uh, and saying that I'm a wine trader from France. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they uh, had uh, online conversations back and forth for a couple of months. Mm -hmm. uh, said there were lots of flirtatious emojis, um, and um, uh, Miss Data said she felt like she had found her soulmate. Right. Um, and uh, as as you alluded to, uh, the bad guy convinced her to venture into crypto trading. Right. And uh, provided her with a download link to what seemed to be a legit version of SoFi, which is a a, um, a that's a legit. Crypto app. I thought SoFi was a lending platform. Is it? Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, 
anyway, it says it was two-factor authentication and customer service. So the point is that this was a um, a copy of that app, but it wasn't the real app. Right. It's designed to look like it. SoFi is a personal finance company. Yes, yes. So, okay. You are correct. You are correct. In fact, uh, this article points out that it is a reputable provider of loans and select banking services in the U.S. and Hong Kong. Okay. Uh, and also that it's often a target for impersonation by scammers because that's where the money is. Right. <laughs> and people have heard of it. Right. Right. So here, so again, you, I mean, you, you called this one, Joe, because when this woman attempted to withdraw her funds from the app, she received a message requiring her to pay a 10% personal tax first. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. So she reached out to her brother, who's a lawyer, who reached out to a private investigator. And between the two of them, they determined that she had indeed fallen victim to a crypto investment scam, the pig butchering. Right. Yeah. So uh, to the tune of over $450,000. Which is a lot of money. It is a lot of money. Especially for a 37-year-old. Yes. This article points out that uh, she had a high-paying job or has a high-paying job. She has a supportive family. Um, so she's going to be okay, but she did have to sell her car and she had to move to a more affordable apartment right. to recover from this financially. But then, of course, there's all the emotional uh, wreckage that yes. comes from oh, something yeah. like this. It's it going to be devastating for yeah, this Just this being lady. taken advantage. Yeah. Um, so uh, there's a few... Um, uh, precautions here that they list in this article. They say conduct thorough research, mm-hmm. verify the other person's identity by searching for them online, checking social media prof- profiles, or finding them on LinkedIn. Uh, yes, that'll only get you so far because quite often these folks will spin up those They'll be media there, profiles. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it says be cautious of love bombing. Uh, and this is people just being really manipulative. Um, this is something that also uh, you hear about happening when people fall into cults. They get yes. love bombed. Um, this is an interesting one. Uh, insist on video communication. One of the things they point out in this article is that they had video chatted a couple of times, but both times uh, the bad guy uh, hid his face, like had excuses for why he wasn't showing his face. Huh. So... Um, Interesting. Yeah. And again, you know, I don't know that this is the solution, but I guess it's a step along the way to try to make it a little safer. Um, Safeguard your personal information and stay vigilant against get-rich-quick schemes. Right. I would say if anybody asks you for money, if anybody asks for any participation in anything financial, right? that is such a gigantic big, big, Blinking red light. Yes. Yeah. I, I feel the same way about that. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that there's, and and maybe it's just because I'm jaded and have been cynical all my life, but, <laughs> um, you know, these people start a conversation with you and they they say things. And I, I am usually very skeptical of people who, who like me right out of the gate. Mm-hmm. Uh, because well, I don't know, Joe, a handsome man like you. I think people would, <laughs> lots of people would like you out of the Well, gate. I can be difficult. Smart Dave. as you are. Um, and, uh, <laughs> smart as I think I am. That's, that's why most people find me off-putting, I think. Um, anyway, um, when, when these people start doing that, when they start, yeah, another thing that 
that will just set my the hair on the back of my neck standing up is when they say my name over and over again. Hey, oh, Joe, yeah. how are you, Joe? Right, right, yeah. I'm like, does that work on anybody? Does that not just irritate people? <laughs> I think it, well, I think there's evidence that it does, but I think there's there's a wide spectrum of people's skill level when it comes to those sorts of methods to establish rapport. Yeah. Yeah. I used to work with a guy selling computer networks and all kinds of stuff that use that trick. And now he sells used cars. <laughs> okay. It's probably a better place. We're, we're, it that worked kinda, its way down the right. food chain. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Huh. It's interesting. Um, you know, uh, along with the money thing, I think if, if, if anybody asks you for money, right. That is the point to engage with a trusted friend. Yes. Friend, family member, someone who's not you. Yes. Who is not in love. Right. Who does not feel like they found the person of their dreams. Correct. And just, just you know, humor us, right? Humor, humor your old pals Dave and Joe. Yeah. Right? right? If someone asks you for anything financial in one of these, it doesn't matter how much you trust them or how much you think you love them. Talk just to a friend. reach out to a friend or a family member and just... Tell them the story and say, there's probably nothing going on here, but I just want to run this by someone because chances are that person is going to have a different perspective than you and will, and, and who, you know, look, maybe, maybe you're lucky and it is the person of your dreams, but the odds are, the overwhelming odds are, right. It is not. Yeah. And even if it is a real person who just needs money, do you really want to date that? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right. Right. I mean, it's. That would that would still be even if I had a uh, even if I was single, which I'm not. Yeah. Uh, but I was dating, and uh, I was dating somebody who said, "You know, I, I I'm a little light this week. You got a hundred bucks I can borrow?" Right. If, if they said that at dinner, I'd be like, uh, "Check, please." <laughs> what if the opposite happened and someone came to you and said, "Hey, Joe, uh, I'm I miss money bags. You know, let me pay for everything." Would that also yeah, that raise would, that your would, suspicions? That would raise my suspicions as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. And I, there's, a, there's a story behind that, but we won't go into that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's a story for another day. Yes. <laughs> right. Fair enough. <laughs> all right. Well, we will have links to all of our stories in the show notes. Uh, and, of course, we would love to hear from you. You can email us. It's hackinghumans at n2k.com. Joe, it's time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, way back in episode 82. Wow. All the way back right before the pandemic in January of 2022. My story was about a scam involving fake license renewals from the New Zealand Transportation Agency. Okay. And I remember this being much more recent. Like, I thought it was, like, within this year. (laughs) Yes, well, there's the pandemic for you. (laughs) Right. It's a lost time. Yeah. Well, our catch of the day comes from Ryan, who has done a great job sending it to us. It is one of those emails from a uh, pretending to be from the New New Zealand Transportation Agency. Mm -hmm. And... Ryan writes, hi, Dave and Joe. I'm a longtime listener from New Zealand. A, a Kiwi. Kiwi. A Kiwi. Right. Or as they say, a Kiwi. Right. Who's your favorite <laughs> New Zealander, Dave? Who's my favorite New Zealander? Yes. Oh, uh, the folks who, fine folks who made the Lord of the Rings. How about that? Ah, okay. I don't, I can't name a specific New Zealander. I'm embarrassed to say. I, I bet I know some, but 
Lucy and, Lawless? Uh, yeah, fine, fine, fine woman, sure. But yes. what about Bundy Aki? No idea who that is. He's a rugby player. Okay. And uh, Take your word for that. Probably my favorite New Zealander because I All love right. watching Bundy play rugby. Fair enough. Uh, and the Rugby World Cup's coming up. Uh, rug, uh, Bundy plays for, um, plays for Ireland, though, which is well, why New Zealand is on my list of places that I would love to see. It's just really far away from here. It is. It <laughs> it's is. about as far as you can go. Uh, that's not the moon. <laughs> yes. I would like to see an All Blacks game in New Zealand. That would be, that's a bucket list item for me. Sure. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, um, anyway, again, we digress. <laughs> hmm. Dave, I love your reenactment of the catch of the day. Pure gold. I'll be nominating you for an Emmy. That's very kind. Well, there you go, Dave. Finally an <laughs> Emmy for you. Anyway, an email arrived in my colleague's personal, not work-related inbox, and she sought my advice knowing that things didn't stack up. Side note, there are two phishing scams that are endlessly cycling around New Zealand, the NZ Post Scam and the NZTA, which is the Transit Authority, our Transit Agency. Uh, The attached is an example of the NZTA scam, and it is really well done. The email itself looks fairly polished. The scammer even used a marketing system, knowing that it would give the email a higher probability of passing through any spam filters that may be present. Mm-hmm. However, the scammer forgot that the marketing system would also add a Portuguese unsubscribe message in the footer. Huh. So that's present there. So, Dave, uh, the, the email is a picture that Ryan has sent. And it says at the top of it, Waka Kat... Mm, I don't even know how to say that. <laughs> Waka Katai? Waka Katahi, I guess. Waka Katahi? Or Waka Katahi. Right. <laughs> See, now this is dangerous ground here uh, for me, Joe. Because, right. Well, not that, you know, my accents are uh, at all precise, but uh, <laughs> the the difference between an Australian accent and a New Zealand accent is, to the people who live there, is as clear as night and day. Yes. That's like you and me knowing the difference between a Boston accent and a Southern accent. Yes, but to us, it ain't so clear. They sound very similar. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So <laughs> I am sure that I am going to, rather than merely doing a bad New Zealander, I'm going to do bad Australian New Zealand mishmash. And for that, I apologize in advance. I, I mean no offense to the great people of the Southern Hemisphere. <laughs> All right. It says... Don't forget to renew your license or exemption. If you've already renewed within the last 24 hours, please ignore this reminder. It costs $109.08 for 12 months if you renew online. Here's your reminder number. Renew now. Thank you. It wasn't too bad. No, it's right. not. But <laughs> Ryan sent along uh, a couple of screenshots and even a video of him interacting with the website. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it's a pretty sophisticated campaign. Hmm. The URL is all wrong. And that's that's a, a red flag. So if you look at the the click, uh, you know the click here button, yeah, it won't direct you to the right website. Okay. Uh, also, it does contain a an unsubscribe message in Portuguese, and I can't read Portuguese, so I'm not going to pretend <laughs> that I can do it. I'm struggling <laughs> learning learning Spanish. Right. So <laughs> this is um, in the video that Ryan sent. He goes to the site. Uh, the, of course, the URL is wrong, and he starts entering garbage data in, and the site comes back and goes, oh, no, that's not right data. Oh, okay. So he enters some data that is correct, and it comes back with all the correct information. 
Uh, huh. it's, it's legitimate information. So either there's some data breach that these guys have gotten a hold of right. from the NZTA, or they're scraping data that's publicly available from a web page or some web service. Right. But right. they're getting the information somehow. Huh. Okay. And then it goes to a payment page. Uh, and by the way, they don't accept Discover. <laughs> okay. Ryan discovered that. All right. Uh, because he entered that. There, you can go out and look up test uh, credit card numbers. And every credit card provider has a series of test numbers that will never get approved, but are uh, are bona fide numbers in the right sequence, so you can test your regular expression against it. Right. Which makes sure that the number's in the right format, is what I should say. Okay. Right? Yeah. So when you're writing the code, you know your code will validate it before it even bothers submitting it. Right. Because that costs money. Okay. So validate it for free before you send it. Yeah. So he uses a MasterCard, and that works on the local validation, and then he clicks submit, and it... it it fails. Yeah. Um, interesting. I'm wondering if there's a way that you can DDoS this service by submitting a bunch of fake, no good uh, credit card numbers. Huh. If you have a list of known bad credit card numbers, just keep submitting them and see if that gets them shut off or maybe cost them money or shuts them down. Hmm. I don't know. Uh, somebody who is familiar with the payment card industry would have to tell me that. Right, right. Huh. But it's it would work, and it yeah. would charge you $109 for 12 months, and you would not get that money. That would be a fraudulent transaction. Right, and so you're expecting to get your renewal for right. your vehicle. And but... there's probably some couple-of-month time delay that lets these guys get away with things. Right, right, yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, departments of motor vehicles are not known for their promptness. Yes, Uh Although I have to say, they they have gotten a lot better. It's it's almost a cliche, but in my experience, it's a lot better than it used to be, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, again, our thanks to Ryan for sending this over to us. It is very interesting. And, of course, we would love to hear from you. You can email us. It's hackinghumans at n2k.com. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Perry Carpenter. Great to have Perry back on the show. It is indeed. Uh, he is discussing his book, The Security Culture Playbook, an executive guide to reducing risk and developing your human defense layer. Here's my conversation with Perry Carpenter. Um, so first, uh, my co-author, Kai Rohr, is an internationally well-known um uh, guy that has been studying security culture for most of his career. And so um, one of the things that we wanted to do with that is kind of merge our voices because Kai is well known is for his research into security culture. I'm pretty well known in my research for awareness and behavior. And as we come together, we can start to paint a lot more complete picture. But the other thing that really prompted this is nuance that's in the subtitle of the book. Um, and I know it's a really, really long subtitle, but there are three critical things in it that we tried to pack in. Um, number one is an executive guide. And so this is meant not necessarily for the practitioner, but for the audience of a board of directors or a CIO or a CEO that really needs to understand that 
Security culture is important. It's something that lives and breathes in every organization, whether you know it or not. And so the question becomes, how intentional are you about the security culture that you have? How sustainable is that? What do you need to do about it? Um, and so that executive piece is is really critical. And our hope is that an executive picks that up, reads the first few chapters, and then says, oh, yeah, we need to to do something intentional with this. And then they hand it down to the person that can implement the vision that's explained there. The second piece that's in the title is reducing risk. And that really comes down to the fact that the entire reason that security exists isn't for the sake of security. And the entire reason that security awareness exists isn't for the sake of security. It's actually to reduce risk in an organization um, and make the risk tolerable so that the organization can go forward and do the business that they've been formed to do. And so this is all about risk reduction and up-leveling the conversation to that executive level or board of directors level. And then that last piece is developing your human defense layer. And so this is about the human side of things because one of the charts that we show early on is that there's a lot of spending that happens on the technology side of security. Every year we spend more and more on that, um, but data breaches are still going up. And when you look at the Verizon DBIR and other reports, the reason that we see the data breaches continue to go up has to do with the human side of things. And so uh, our argument is that we need to put more intention on that so that we can then reduce risk. Can we take a, a quick step back and, and talk about the notion of security culture itself? I mean, one of the things you uh, explore in the book is this idea that uh, security culture has a, a specific set of dimensions. Yeah, you mentioned that we have different dimensions that we break security culture up into. And this is drawn from the social sciences. So we believe that you can measure any type of culture with this. But specifically, we're looking at the security-related nuance. And so we break security culture into seven different dimensions. Attitudes, behaviors, cognition, communication, compliance, norms, and responsibilities. And one of the interesting things that we say in that is... Yeah, as we measure that, we can see whether you're strong or you're weak in different areas, but that doesn't mean that all is lost or all is gained if you see one of those data points. So if you look at your aggregated security culture score and you're concerned about that, uh, you don't have to tackle all seven of those because each of these has a gravitational effect on the other. If you're if you're influencing cognition and giving people the right information to make the right decisions at the right time, you're probably also influencing their attitudes and you're definitely influencing their behaviors if you see that come to pass. So you can strategically focus on one, two, or three of these and you're going to be pulling the others along the way. There's another key thing that comes out in this book and that is, and this is another reason behind why we created it in the first place, is there's a lot of and has been a lot of talk about quote-unquote security culture for years. And people are using that phrase in articles and journals and conference presentations and, and everything else. The thing that was missing, though, is an actual definition of it. And what we found, um, we actually, um, we at Know Before, so this is separate from from Kai and I, our, our employer Know Before, commissioned a study with Forrester a couple years ago. And what we wanted to understand was, do people really know what security culture is and do they value it? 
And we found that 94% of people value security culture. They believe that it's an important thing to reduce risk in their organization. But then we started to ask the more nuanced question of what do you believe security culture is? And what we found was a, a shocking fragmentation of what people believe it actually is. Some people believe security culture is following policies. Other people believe that it's the establishment of a security awareness program. Other people believe that it's shared responsibility across an organization. So the the funny thing is, is that somebody like me could stand on a stage and say security culture is important and everybody in the room can be nodding their heads. Everybody believes that they're agreeing to the same thing, but everybody actually having a different conclusion of what that means. Are those things mutually exclusive? I mean, can can they... Is there anything that keeps them from coexisting? No, there's not not anything that keeps it from coexisting. But the thing that w- that was shocking in that is the the segmentation that we saw in that somebody would believe that it's wholeheartedly one thing that it's let, let's say following policies. And so, if I believe a good security culture is is following and mandating policies, I might go in pursuit of that in a way that it's absent of empathy. Um, and and maybe actually alienates my people in some way because I have this more authoritarian way of approaching it. Um, if I see it only as disseminating awareness-related information, I could do that in a way that potentially, again, gives me a false sense of security because I'm getting the right information in front of people, but I might not be seeing the behavior follow-up with that. So again, there was this kind of shocking thing that we noticed, which was people are using this phrase over and over and over again, but without any definition behind that. And so that was leading to, I think, a lot of false assumptions um, with people in good faith believing that they're pursuing, quote unquote, security culture, but they were doing it in a more narrow focus than really they needed to. And and so they're, they're putting all their faith in this one thing that they believe it to be, but kind of potentially ignoring a number of other things that it should be and that would have that gravitational effect to kind of move the culture where it needs to be. And so when we define security culture, um, we pull it from social science, very similar to the way that we pulled those seven different dimensions of culture. And so we say security culture is the ideas, the customs, and the social behaviors of an organization that influence its security. And that's deceptively simple, but within that, you do hear a few key terms, your ideas. So these are not just information, but things that, that permeate the people in the organization itself related to that uh, security aspect of things. The customs, so that's the lived out behaviors and the ritualized behaviors, the things that are caught rather than taught by people. So the things that you'll see and bring on through peer pressure or through on-the-job training that may not even be codified in a policy mm-hmm. and the social behaviors. Um, and very, very similar in that. Uh, again, the things that uh, kind of the unwritten rules of the organization uh, that are just dictating the way that people live their security in that organization. That can be positive or negative. So we're not being prescriptive in that, but your security culture is in each of those things and in each of those seven dimensions, positive or negative across that. Again, the the idea there is you have that security culture, whether you want it or not. It's do you have the one that you want or not? 
You know, you you pointed out that uh, in the subtitle of the book, you say this is an executive guide. How important is it that this comes from the top in an organization? I think it's vitally important because if people don't feel like they are being consistent with the leadership of an organization in their values and their beliefs and their the the lived out behaviors then there's a, a cognitive dissonance that comes in. Number one, they they always want to know that they're going to be supported in the decisions that they make and the actions that they take. So that being valued from the top uh, naturally starts to resonate down. The other thing is people don't like class systems, especially um, in the age that we're growing into right now and post-COVID. People do not like to see class systems in their organizations. So if there's one standard of behavior related to security that is pushed down to everybody else but not lived out within the executive ranks, people are going to rebel in different ways against that. So I think um, setting tone at the top is for sure really important. But there's also some nuance that you can add by finding people in the middle of the organization and even at the very bottom of the organization that have loud and clear voices within their social group, and you want to tap into them as well. You know, I, I often – I like to think uh, in analogies. It helps me to, you know, figure things out in my own mind sometimes. And sometimes when I'm thinking about security, I think about, you know, the the people who have a retail shop or something like that. And you'll sometimes see, you know, the person behind the cash register will say, well, it's not my job to stop people from stealing things off the shelf. That's the that's the security guard's job, you know, and I'm not going to – I have enough to do. I'm I'm busy – my job is hard enough without having to deal with those things. And we've got people who we've hired just to do that. So why should I take my time to do that? How do we fight that mindset within, uh, you know, other organizations? That's a good question. So if you go into that seven dimensions that we mentioned, there's two that come to mind there. One is um, attitudes, and then another one is cognition. And then, of course, norms is there too. So you can build that in as a norm. Um, And that goes into one of the definitions that people were giving security culture before, which is when I talked about that fragmentation and the way that people understood it, one of those was security is a shared responsibility. Yeah, it is that, but it's not only that. But when you talk about um, the thing that you were wanting to, to get to, that shared responsibility piece of that as expressed in norms and is understood in cognition um, and is rightly taken on in the attitude dimension becomes really, really important because, I, yeah, I don't want the, the cashier to just wash their hands of something that's dangerous or I don't want in my, let's say we're physically in an office and somebody comes in without a badge or somebody tries to tailgate behind me through the door. Um, We don't want employees to wash their hands of that. So one of the things that you have to do is find ways to instill that social norm of the way that we do things here is is we all take responsibility. And you have to model that out from the top, also in the middle and at the bottom of the organization through people that that have social standing. And so you model that, uh, you build that into your norms, you, you, you know, at a cognitive level, you teach people why it's really important that they step up and and take that. You also have to make them feel really, really safe in doing that. Let's say everybody's on board and they believe that security is the right thing for the organization. They, they want to help manage risk. At that point, you have to empower them and you have to reduce fear. 
and empowering is saying, if you get this wrong and you challenge somebody that's maybe important, maybe it's a, a regional vice president that comes in, they just don't have their badge that day, and you challenge them and say, I'm sorry, you don't have your badge. We're going to have to take you down to security and make sure that you have clearance, that you're not going to get punished for doing that step. So you have to empower them. You have to reduce fear of punishment. And then you also, let's say there's there's fear of that person's own physical safety uh, in that. Uh, I've, I've seen somebody that's suspicious. I want to tell somebody, but I'm also afraid to do something about it because I'm afraid that that person is going to come after me. So I'm not going to physically go stop them. How do I do it? So at that point, you, you kind of go back to the see something, say something mentality. But the one thing that's always missing in see something, say something is here's the way to do that. So you have to follow up with here's the phone number to call. Here's the person to contact. At that moment, maybe it is somebody else's job to put themselves physically in the way of that other threat that they see. And so it's not your job to be to take on the potential for physical harm. It is your job to say, oh, there is a a potential for harm there. Let me contact the right person and, and do my part that way. Joe, what do you think? Uh, I'm a big fan of Perry. Yeah. I've talked to him a couple times. Yeah. Um, And actually, I think I talked to him while he was writing this book. Okay. um, To get an idea of what it was he was doing. He said, Joe, I I need an idea for a book. No, he he didn't need that for me. In fact, I was talking to him about an idea I have for a book. (laughs) He said, go away, Joe. I'm writing a book. Right. (laughs) But um, – I think it's a good idea for him to get Kai involved in this because security awareness, which is Perry's area, is not going to do any good in an organization if you don't have a good, positive, healthy security culture. Right. Uh, You can have all the security awareness in the world. If someone is afraid to report something to you, they're going to try to hide it. Yeah. Uh, So make sure you have a good, healthy security culture. Right. And I like how Perry defines that, uh, which I'm going to get to in a minute. But Perry makes a point that should be obvious to everyone, but may not be. Hmm. And that's all the security business is just about risk management. Yeah. Right? It's about reducing the risk or transferring the risk or uh, accepting the risk. Yeah. Right? You have, those are the three things you can do with risk. So it's, uh, it's that's what this is about. You're just trying to make it less risky to operate your business. Mm-hmm. Um, Interesting that spending on tech is going up and up and up, but breaches are still not stopping. And Perry cites the uh, the DBIR from Verizon. Yeah, I covered that a couple of weeks ago, or at least the social engineering portion of it a couple of weeks ago. Right, uh, and it, it reminds me. This whole discussion reminds me of. Bruce Schneier's statement that if you think technology is the solution to your problem, you don't understand the technology and you don't understand the problem. <laughs> okay, right, because. Yeah. He's right that yeah. this is uh, this is a human. There's a huge part of this problem that is a human problem, and I like what they've done here. I like how Perry of Kai, Perry and Kai have broken down the security culture into these dimensions, these seven dimensions. He he talks about that you can measure. This is imperative, and we all know that security uh, culture, that culture, your security culture is 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 important, but. The discussion that Perry has here is really, really enlightening. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. The image you have in your head is going to be different from the image everybody else has in your head. 
Mm. right? You could say security culture is important. And I think it's important to quantify it or define it at least. And I like his definition. The idea is the customs and social behaviors of an organization that influence its security. Mm -hmm. That's a great, concise, but rich, very dense definition of security culture. Yeah. And uh, another key point that Perry makes is you have a security culture at your company right now. (laughs) <laughs> right, right. Right. That's very important to realize. Yeah. You need to know what it is. Yeah. And then you need to, before you can even start changing it. Uh, right. And I like how Perry des- describes these things in terms of social sciences and how you go about building a, a good, healthy security culture is just as important as doing it. And I really like the, what he says about the gravitational effect that these things have on each other, right? Like behavior uh, is going to have a... A, uh, a thought on the cognitive process or an effect on the cognitive processes. So if you just try to start influencing behavior, you're going to start uh, influencing the thinking around it. Like yeah. th- there's the old saying, you can't think your, your way into right living. You have to live your way into right thinking, hmm. right? Interesting. So uh, you can move more than one needle on this seven, uh, I don't know, seven panel, seven indicator, seven dimensional. <laughs> right, right. Now, you can move one of those, more than one of those dimensions by just going after one of them. I, I think that's a really important point. Yeah. Um, I have not read this book yet. It's been on my list. Uh, I think I'm going to pick it up. Yeah. All right. Well, our thanks to Perry Carpenter for spending the time with us. Again, the book is titled The Security Culture Playbook, an Executive Guide to Reducing Risk and Developing Your Human Defense Layer. We appreciate Perry taking the time for us. That is our show. We want to thank you all for listening. Our thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. This show is edited by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.